The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. Welcome to the True Tone Lounge. I'm your host, Zach Childs. Today, we have one of the great Telecaster players of all time, our friend, Red Volkart. Hi. Red was born in Canada. Vancouver, Canada. Yes, and then made, made his move you know, down, down further south, and then over to, over to California, and then over to Nashville in, in around 90, and he joined the Don Kelly Band, was part of that, you know, the you know, of course, list of, of wonderful players that were part of uh, part of his band. Till I got there, yeah. Till you, t- yeah, and then and then you know played with Merle Haggard, and that that's a pretty coveted uh, you know guitar chair. And then he moved to Austin, and he you can see him, you know, almost every night of the week, you know, there, and you know, just a a treasure of honky tonk guitar, and so proud to have you on the show. So thank you, Red. Thank you, my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you very much. So was it your dad that kind of influenced you to pick up the guitar in the first place? Uh, it doesn't say influence, more like force, but yeah. uh, I'm a middle child, so uh, I got my brother's everything, clothes and his guitar. Yeah. And he quit, had a guitar and that my dad gave him, and he plinked a little bit, and he said, nah, I want to play the drums. So he took up the drums, and within a year, my dad said, uh you should play guitar. It'd be great, you know? And I'm like, mm, nah. Yeah. So I said, because of the middle child uh, issues, <clears throat> I said, I want to play the bass. And he already played, my dad played. So he said, you know, I think if you if you play the guitar first, the bass might come easier, totally, than if you were to switch it around, play the bass, and then try to play guitar. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to want to play guitar because that guitar's in the corner. I didn't say that, but... So he said, no, I think you should start with a guitar first. So he set me up with a friend of his who was a teacher, a real teacher, and and, uh, I took lessons for about three months, and then the teacher fired me because I wasn't learning to read. I was 10 years old. Yeah. So uh, he calls my dad in one day and says, well, uh, we got to talk. My dad says, oh, I got, got a genius on my hands. And he said, well, I don't know about that, but he said he's not learning to read. He's parroting everything that I'd show him. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I would show him, you know, like Alfred's guitar course. Uh, one of the first songs was Eau Claire de la Lune. It's Canadian. <laughs> and, uh, you know, can-can, things like that. So he said I would play, show him reading it in the book and going... Yeah. And I would remember what he did, watch what he did, and and pretend to read in the book. And Dad says, well, how do you know he's not reading? He said, well, he dropped this pick, and when we went to pick it up, I turned the page, and he came back and played the same thing. So <laughs> well, that's kind of where we're at. So by then, of course, my dad's smoking mad because he spent $2.50 on a lesson for like three months, once a week. So he was mad and... 
said, well, what do you suggest? He said, well, obviously he's got a pretty good ear and a good memory, so just let him play guitar if he wants to play guitar. So yeah. said, okay, so got really quiet on the way home and all of that. And uh, so that from then on, I just uh, did it, you know, playing with the neighbor's kids and got into playing that way and, you know, sitting around and, you know, being a rock guy at home and my brother was playing the drums by then so we had our own power duo and rocked the basement of our home in Vancouver Canada and uh, till we started playing some sock hops like lunch parties at school at high school you wanted you wanted to be a rock player well yeah, like all yeah. kids of course yeah and you know you you loved Richie Blackmore and 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 the and the bands you know that were you know of, of that era of that era totally and so when did country music become, you know, in Western Swing and all these, you know, when, when did that become, you know, more palatable and something that was more interesting to you? Uh, probably when I was about 13, I guess. I My parents had a pretty good record collection and, uh, like, my mom had uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Les Paul and Mary Ford and Jimmy Bryant. She had a Jimmy Bryant 10-inch EP. Wow. Jimmy Bryant, Speedy West. So I'd heard that a lot. And my dad had Jimmy Reed and Albert King, B.B. King, uh, those kind of guys. He had some Waylon early records and uh, Merle and Buck Owens and Ray Price. And they would have parties at the house with another couple or two on the weekends and and move all the furniture. And the hi-fi would play Ray Price and Buck Owens all night. Yeah. So I heard that through osmosis, I guess, while I slept as a boy. And and uh, so I heard all that stuff. And, you know, it was like, oh, it's okay. It's dad's music you know yeah and then uh i wound up uh, my dad introduced me to some pool playing buddies of his that played music and they needed a guitar player to play in their little weekend band uh doing the legions and stuff like that so my dad says my boy plays you ought to hear him play hey get up middle of the night sit down and play for these guys so i'll sit down and i play play some country stuff and i you know do my <laughs> kind of stuff and they're like all right you got a gig so i had a gig with these guys playing weekends and they played like i called it the antler tour where they played elks and moose lodge and anything with horns on it it mm -hmm. seemed like they had a, a club for those sort of guys and yeah. and the vets and legions and all those kind of things so they had weekend work all the time they said great we'll do it and he said well he doesn't drive yet so you have to come get him and uh, so I, they said, yeah, sure, we'll do that. So I did that for a couple of years. And then, of course, they played old country stuff, Jim Reeves and Hank Williams and Hank Thompson and just all the, uh, their era of stuff of the old guy music, and uh, which I love more now. Yeah. You know, but so that kind of got me started on the country stuff. So I thought, okay, these guys pay money. Our little rock band doesn't pay anything. And I could buy another guitar with that money. More, another amp maybe you know so i'm thinking so i get out all my parents country stuff and i start woodshedding with that you know and pretty soon i'm you know kind of stuff and so playing back then they played instrumentals yeah a fair bit you know i mean they even played them on the radio uh during and before the farm report they would mm -hmm. say you know it would be a troubadours instrumental playing red top or some kind of you know 
kind of instrumentals. And yeah. now here's the farm report. So lots of instrumentals were going back in the 60s and 70s. So uh, it was fun to learn those things, and I really got into that. And the more I got into it, the more I got into it. So uh, yeah. that kind of was the bug that bit me and made me go, man, I just love this stuff. I don't know why. Maybe it was from my parents listening and dancing to it as a kid and hearing that and then trying to play it and go, I guess I'm not so dumb after all. I kind of learned how to do that, sort of, you know. So it wasn't like that there was, you heard some country album and you were in love. It was a process of you, you know, kind of learning the songs and slowly you kind of fell in love with it. Yeah. I guess yeah. it's kind of like, yeah, shacking up with a girl. Same yeah. kind of deal, you know. Yeah. You know, you, you keep playing and then you end up moving to Edmonton, Alberta, you know, for gigs. You play there. And then what, what is it that caused you to to make the big leap to go to California, to, you know, go to the States? Well, I lived in Alberta, and that's where I played professionally six nights a week for, I don't know, probably 10 years, I guess. And yeah. I played in a bunch of great bands and, and learned a lot. And uh, I kind of got to the point of realizing that not that I was going to do anything. I'm just a dumbass guitar player, but I was looking at it like... What's my biggest goal? I could play for this guy or that guy who's the big stuff in Canada at the time. But there again, like all commercial music, it wasn't the stuff I wanted to do. Because mm -hmm. there wasn't much guitar playing in it. And so it was a combination between that and the way that, to me, I don't know if it's all countries, but I kind of got a feeling that it's all other countries other than here, though it may be here too. Uh, what, what I kind of felt like I ran into was most people's judge of a good player was a guy that can sound like somebody. So up there, it was like that. Oh, you ought to hear this guy. He sounds just like, you know, Roy Clark, or he sounds just like, pick a name, you know, at the time, right. whoever's the hot stuff of the day kind of thing, you know. So uh, it was kind of like, man, I, what about that guy that lives over there that I know? And he plays, like, better than all that stuff. And it's like, yeah, nobody cares. He never had any crowds. He couldn't get anybody. Bunch of great thumb-picking, Chet Atkins-style players in Canada that, that go unnoticed. Bunch of good jazz guys, you know, that are in all these little towns that I was traveling around playing, thinking none of these guys get in any notoriety and nothing's going on for them. And, and they have to, if they want to play in a band, they got to play in a cover band and, and copy some commercial schlock that, they probably hate just so they can work and play money and say that I'm making music. Yeah. So I, that kind of soured me a bit, and I thought, man, it's got to be better in the States. Yeah. All these great guys are down there, Leon Rhodes and Buddy Emmons and all these guys playing down there, and they invent all this stuff that I'm trying to steal and learn. So I think I want to go down there, and I don't care if I get a gig playing. I want to go watch those guys play and see if what I've stolen is in the right if he's doing red top, if Leon's playing red top and he ends it with I want to know if he's doing it there. So uh, if I get to see him do that, then I can go home and I'll be good. Yeah. That was my thought, you know. <laughs> so being from Vancouver, I thought oh, I'll stop and see my mom first because if I get killed while I'm in the states, yeah, which uh, is at least likely. I said by it's likely. Yeah. So because yeah. there's a lot of crime on TV, you know, yeah. the to cop shows and stuff. So I said bye to her in case that happened. So I had a 
<clears throat> I had a Telecaster, an old Esquire that I put a Strat pickup in the middle and another Tele pickup in. And I packed up my stuff and I had a, I sold a bunch of stuff and bought a new pickup truck, a little Nissan. I had a canopy on it and I built a little bed so I could sleep in it. I took, you know, two black dress pants for going for playing gigs in case I get one or I go out somewhere. And I had my jeans and five shirts and a Telecaster and a Super Reverb and I hit the road. You were ready. Yeah. So I figured I'm going to go down. But being on the West Coast, I'm going to stop in California and kind of piddle my way across and eventually go to Nashville, go to the Opry and watch the Leon Rhodes and Buddy Emmons and all that stuff. So uh, that's what I ended up doing and kind of dinking my way down that way and yeah. stopping along the way and playing and been lucky that way. I've been playing since I came down. Yeah. yeah. You moved to California in 86. And that was an interesting, you know, country scene, you know, in the Los oh, Angeles wonderful. area. Oh, wonderful. So there was, you know, there was Pete Anderson and, and you had... Jim you know, Lauderdale, Jim was, Lauderdale. Was substituting for Dwight Yoakam as, yeah. as a substitute singer before they go out on the road and do a tour. Dwight didn't want to sing at the rehearsals, so he would send Lauderdale because he was living there and broke at the time. And, yeah. And they were best buddies anyway, so yeah, I'll do that. And, so he'd slip my bit of dough and rent money or whatever so he could do that. And just wow. that kind of stuff was going on. It was so cool back then, you know. Well, also you had, you had John Jorgensen. Oh, yeah. And, and John, uh, I, I sent John an email and I said that I was interviewing you. And he, uh -oh. he, said, and he, said, he said, ask Red to tell, him, to tell you about the first gig that we did together at Rawhide's. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened? Well, there was this gal who was a wonderful singer out there, Kathy Robertson. She's mm -hmm. a really good country rockabilly singer. Great gal, great band leader. Hustler, could get work everywhere and anywhere. She had a, a steady gig at this place in North Hollywood called the Rawhide, mm -hmm. and it was a gay bar. The bathroom said them and you. So uh, this was in the middle 80s. So it wasn't quite as... Uh, open as it is today kind of thing and but whatever it was you know so we would do this gig and she always had two guitar players and a steel player bass and drums okay so the guitar players was was either uh john jerry donahue will ray <laughs> jeff ross or me so <laughs> we all played together two of us at a time lots mm -hmm. every monday night for several years down there and a fellow named Doug Livingston was a steel guitar player, fantastic. He was Donna Summer's band leader on the piano, okay. and Jose Feliciano's for a long time too. And he's just like a Oscar Peterson wizard guy. So he took up the steel guitar. Most of the time his feet were hanging out the end and he didn't use pedals, but he sounded like Emmons, you know? Wow. Just unbelievable player. So it was always a fun band playing, and we played at this place called the Rawhide, and of course, we had all kinds of fun with it. They had a magazine rack that had some of the weirdest stuff you've ever seen yeah, I, that I was can, uh, for sale or grab or whatever, and yeah, yeah it was an interesting gig, but musically, wow, it was great, and of course, she did all the Stand By Your Man kind of songs, and so the tips were unbelievable. It was just a perfect gig and a great time, and uh, we became fast friends through that gig, yeah. you know. Part of that, you know, that scene, of course, I think there, there might have been hopes of like meeting like Merle Haggard or Buck or someone like that while you were there. Did you ever, did you get to meet Before them? that, yeah, the first place I stopped 
coming from Washington State was in Redding, California, right, where right. Earl lived. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I'll see him at the Kroger, you know, or with the yeah. grocery store there. Of course, he's on the road traveling all the time. I didn't yeah. see him anywhere. So I went to this club uh, in town there called the Saddlehorn, and, and on a Sunday night, there was a jam session. So I went to this jam session. You sign up, they call you up, play a couple songs. I play, get up and I play a couple songs, and the guy from the crowd, hey, you looking for work? And I said, mm, maybe. What do you got? He said, well, start here tomorrow night, six nights a week for a month. Cool. I'll pay you 300 a week. That's enough to get out of town on. I'll do that. Sure. Yeah. So I did that, and I kind of worked my way down to L.A., and I wound up, after that, I went to San Jose, and I got a house gig at a club, a uh, place called uh, Cowtown in San okay. Jose that used to be Sam's, and I believe the song Sam's Place was written oh, yeah, about that. The Buck tune, yeah. And uh, Bobby Black was the steel guitar player in the house band then, so it was yeah. like, hell yeah, I'll take that gig. So I did that for six, eight months, and then I went to Santa Cruz and played down there for a while, then went to L.A., yeah. And uh, but of course I thought I'd see Merle in Reading and it was gone went on the road so never yeah. ran into him at all and uh, I saw him up in Canada at concerts and dreamt about boy I'd love to yeah. have that Roy Nichols chair you know kind yeah. of thing did did you get to meet you know Roy or any of the strangers or anything not like back that? then no not okay. until uh, not until I'd moved to to Nashville here okay so you moved so you moved to Nashville in '90 on yeah you know, and and you 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 were hungry. Actually, I was going to leave town. I was almost out of money. I couldn't find any gigs. I got some gigs in Arkansas when I moved here, driving back to Arkansas on the weekends to play. And uh, it just worked out that Don Kelly was at a place called the Stagecoach and yeah. was needing a guitar player. He had some trouble with a guy just before me, and and he had to kind of leave in a hurry and go back to Louisiana. So I, I had been subbing a couple, two or three gigs. So Don says, hey, you want this gig? Hell yeah. So I was there six nights with Dawn, and the seventh night was a dark night, they called it, but there was another band, a different band playing. So I played with that band, too, and played seven nights a week there for about three years. And then Clinton Gregory was a fiddle player in that band. Right. He got a record deal on step one, and we went on the road for, I don't know, two or three years doing that. I'm curious, with, with Don Kelly, because of the all the guitar players that have played with him, and I've seen some of them, you know, Living here for the past, you know, 20 years, I've been able to see some of them kind of go through the Don Kelly school and see how they changed and such. Yeah. So I was wondering because, you know, I, I didn't get here early enough to really see you that much in the in the Don Kelly thing. How much did just the gig itself change you and how much did Don Kelly's direction as a band leader change you as a player? I still believe he's the best band leader from, that I've ever played with because he's a great guy and of course he's a guitar nut himself so yeah. I mean we have so much him and guitar players have so much in common if he's not playing he's looking at, for guitars in pawn shops you know he's just that kind of guy so we went every day we had mapped out in the town we'd go to the east side one day the west side another part south side each day and so we'd hit all canvas them all all the time for yeah. you know 11 years I was here yeah. We did that all the time, and so we got along great, and he was into cars, too, and stuff. And But as a band leader, just he was so cool and easygoing, and uh, Buddy would bust you. 
because he just knew from all the, I guess, all the other great players that he had, if you were overdoing something or stepping on somebody singing or something, you'd hear, hey, while you're in the middle of your hot, ripping solo, you'd hear, hey, <laughs> just over on the side. And it was like a dad yell. Yeah. And it was like, stop. Yeah. Quit that shit. You know, yeah. so it was a learning thing, and, and blunt as it was, man, it worked and it helped because yeah. he was older than the guys that worked for him. So, and he had a had a job for a thousand years in every place he's been. So, out of respect to a guy that uh, works that much, and and there's obviously there's a reason that he's there that long. So you go, okay, I'll listen to that guy. He's got something very valuable, and every time you go see him. He's always got some holy cow guitar player with him, and there's a reason for that, you know, kind of. So for me, I was that, man, I'm a lucky bugger to get in something like that, yeah. to, to weasel in under the wire and land that gig and have him yell at me. And, you know, he was in a nice way always, though. He, I, if, if there was guys at the end of the gig, you'd have a couple guitar players gather around at the end of your gig and you're packing your stuff. And he'd come with your money and he'd hand you your money in front of everybody every time. He'd say, here, go buy your tone and walk away. And, of course, the guys that didn't know him would go, that's your boss? you go, yeah. You know, I'm proud. Yeah. But knowing him, it's like, that's so him. Yeah. And until those guys knew him, they thought, man, what a grouchy, mean guy. Yeah. He's not at all. Yeah, but he'd come over with your money and say, go buy a tone. Go buy a tone. Go buy your tone, boy. And he'd walk away. So everybody's mouth would drop, you know, and, and it's like, he's telling you to get a tone, you know. Who were some of the guitar players that came and, and saw you play? Because, you know, because people would come to town and, and come to see. Oh, lots of guys, you know. I don't know who all, but a lot of them over the years, you know, I was there. I guess I was there, oh, I don't know, three years or something like that, I think. So there was a lot of people come through, bands right. and stuff too. And of course, we had a jam session Monday night. So every, everybody in the band, the goal was to get off stage. So, right. so you hey, you want to get up and play? Yeah. Outside smoking cigarettes, you know. That yeah, having of, a beer or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Hitting on girls, whatever, yeah. that kind of stuff. So so he, he kind of helped you kind of, maybe playing commercial isn't the exact right word to use, but he kind of helped you kind of reel in your play. Harness, yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, harness your energy and also... He was, uh, you know, what else was he? About tone and stuff, too. He'd, yeah. he, I'd try amps all the time and just, you know, he'd be like, nah, that thing sounds like shit. Get rid of it. And I'd be like, I just bought it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm at that point, I'm like a dumb kid. I mean, I just bought it. Why would I get rid of it? Yeah. I don't care that it sounds bad. I just got it. Yeah. But he, so he was more about, no, it doesn't sound good. Get rid of it. So what kind of sound did Don Kelly want? He had an old homemade rig that was a blackface showman head with a D-130 JBL in it. No mm -hmm. reverb, nothing, and sounded unbelievable good yeah. all the time. And is that the sound that he wanted from his guitar players? No, or? he wanted you to have your own sound. Okay. And hopefully it was better than his. Yeah. He was that kind of guy, really giving. Because, I mean, he'd have a guitar on all, all, the, all night, but he didn't take in a, whole, in a you know, nine to two, he would take maybe eight solos in a night. The rest yeah. was yours, yeah. you know? So he was all about, you play good, keep going, play, take another one, take another one. Yeah. But it would be like, he would always encourage you to play different stuff each solo. 
So if I think, so I got to thinking like, okay, I'm going to play, this is a Buck Owens thing, so I'll play a Buck Owens or Don Rich kind of solo in it. Mm -hmm. So he'd go, oh, that's great, go again. And then the night he'd go, you played three Don Rich solos in a row. Why would you do that? Aha. Ding. Yeah. So I start thinking, okay, if I get three solos, I should play a Don Rich and maybe a Roy Nichols and a James Burton. Yeah. And then as time would go on, he'd be like, yeah, it's all that skinny string stuff. Don't you know any melodies or chords? Ding. Yeah. Painful ding. <laughs> you go, okay, well, maybe I'll play a Chet atkins sort of bad without a thumb pick solo in the middle of those two solos. So I'd, yeah. And I ended up getting into that where I would think, okay, it really doesn't matter what the song is. Yeah. If he's given me three solos, it's not about the lyric and the message anymore when everybody's on the dance floor dancing and drinking and grabbing butts and all that. Yeah. It's about a band having fun and playing and the people dancing and the energy's up and part of your energy up is playing different fun things that makes the band perk up and the people react to that. So right. that's all part of that. And he just knew all that stuff, you know? That, that's fantastic because, yeah, your tendency would be, okay, I'm going to play Working Man Blues. I'm going to so, play this solo yeah, off the record exactly. and then another one that's kind of like it. And yeah, you're going to kind of continue to play kind of in a James Burton kind of vein. That, that, or Roy yeah, Nichols of course, because it fits yeah, that song. Yeah, but you wouldn't think about, you know, I need to what keep this What would Hank do in that song? Yeah. You know, all these different guitar players. And right, and this town's full of those guys, yeah. so you could just think, okay, Jimmy Cap, Spider Wilson, pick your name, you know. Yeah. Um, who, how do those guys play? I don't know how they played, but it kind of was like this, and I would emulate a horrible, probably, version. But nonetheless, at least I was trying, and he dug that. Yeah. And he'd be like, come on, that's great, go again, do another one. He's that kind of guy. So in that way, or way for a guitar nerd, that's the best boss a guy could have. Yeah, you know, because you're you're playing a lot, and he's given seven nights, yeah. six nights with him a week all the time. Did that wear you out? Hell no! I was playing downtown <laughs> doing duos during the day yeah. just so I could warm up and try and think of new shit to to get make him happy. Yeah, you know, because yeah. it was exciting. Yeah, yeah. So, like I say, for a guitar nerd, it's it was for me like hog heaven. Yeah. So, were you more motivated by trying to keep Don Kelly, you know, excited, or the or the audience, or both, or all of it? Yeah, yeah. definitely, because I was starting to see his pattern or whatever you call that of, of being a band leader, the main thing is those people drinking, ringing that cash register, and the dance floor full and doing long sets. So if you take a break, they're going to go to another club. Exactly. So that started the whole downtown thing here where bands don't take a break. Mm -hmm. I want to blame Don Kelly for that. Yeah. You know, because it, when you take a break, they go some, oh, this is great. We've enjoyed it. I heard so-and-so's playing over at this place. Let's go over there for a beer. Exactly. Where if you keep them there, they're going to forget about it, hopefully, because yeah. it's going, man, this is great. Yeah. We'll have to go tomorrow. It's too late. Yeah, because who cares if you have to play two hours straight? You're going to you're gonna make more tips. You're going to make more exactly. money. Exactly, yeah. yeah. The bar makes more money. You keep your job longer. Back then, we didn't have, if they paid a cover, there was no tip jar. You yeah. know, so uh, back at Stagecoach, we didn't make any tips. It was just okay. a flat pay. But the bar, you know, if the bar w was down that week, they'd bitch like hell to them. 
You know, or if it was up, it'd be, hey, Don, we sure had a great week last week. Okay, I don't know that he got a raise or not because we didn't, but yeah. I doubt that he did either. It was a club. They're club owners, you know. Yeah. They're going to try and cut his throat if they can. That's their gig, you know. But <laughs> anyway, that was I started seeing that as a thing, learning from that, that that's how and why he did what he did. Was It was not only to help a young guitar player think about being a better player and trying different stuff, the purpose of that really was the energy level in the band, so it had more energy, and maybe the piano player would go, oh, I gotta play a better solo next, so everybody's not louder or faster or nothing, but just cooler stuff and fitting in better and making the band groove better, and your rhythm playing, what are you doing when you're not playing a hot rod solo? Yeah. Most guys just stand there with their pick in their hand, you know? So how about playing rhythm really good? Yeah. So that became a whole other thing for me. In a bigger band, if we got two guitar players and a steel player and a fiddle player, I'm only gonna play one fifth of what's going on in there. So what can I do to help this thing mm -hmm. instead of just standing there waiting for my turn to show off? What can I do to help? Yeah. So you play in a solo and I'm playing and it's a shuffle and I'm playing the, the rhythm behind your solo, I might be going, next guy's turn. I don't want to do the same thing and make him think of what you just did because of my groove. If my my groove can help the next guy think of something different, I might think your, your solo gets, next guy's solo gets, like that, and then the next guy's solo, make it swing a bit. Yeah. What are you gonna play over that? Yeah. That kind of a thing, you know? Yeah. So I started, uh, help me with that, thinking about the rhythm aspect of being in a bigger situation band. A lot of bands that I would see, at the time, maybe they're all great and they all do that now. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, back then it didn't seem like a lot of guys would play much rhythm unless they were assigned a rhythm job as an acoustic player. Right. Electric telly guys were just like the, like steel players that put their hand on their lap or on the steel and wait till they get to play a big hot rod solo and save the world, you know? <laughs> so to me, it was like, well, why not help that guy and have him dependent on your whatever you're doing that's going to help him. So if you're if you all of a sudden are playing a great rhythm and there's a good bed for you to play a solo over, aren't you want to really going to want to play something cool? Yeah. So all of a sudden, I'm doing some other gigs with other bands and some showcases at that time, and all of a sudden, I'm getting some gigs. I think maybe a bit more for my rhythm playing than my lead playing because it's a big ensemble setup, you know, over a bunch of players, and uh, they're all playing together, but I'm playing lots of rhythm on these things. So I, I'm starting to wonder, okay, is that is that maybe why? Because I see these other showcases, the bands before and after, nobody's doing that. Yeah. So, ah, oh, maybe there's a catch to that. You know, if you're playing a two-beat rhythm, there's five different rhythms you can play to that, you know, that guys can solo over. So Don helped me start to think about that kind of stuff, too. Yeah, because... In the night, you know, 
unless you're in the Don Kelly band, you're going to be playing rhythm a lot more than you're going to be playing lead. <laughs> in most bands, oh, yeah. totally. So yeah. why not work on that? Your timing, your groove between the bass and the, and the drums, you got to fit in there somehow. And maybe if they're lopsided one way, you're the need to be the guy that's going to no. balance it out even if it stays that way you need to stay in the center of that half cock to make it all groove you know yeah. so that's part of your job as a rhythm guy and i think that's equally as important as important as being a hot rod uh, look at me play kind of yeah. playing triplets all night you know So how long had you dreamed of playing for Merle Haggard? Probably since I was about 12 or 13, I guess, you know, yeah. and yeah. That, I mean, I saw him play a couple of times. I was like, wow, that's the music. And I'd sit as a kid and learn, you know, try and play all the, uh, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And, you know, the whole, just hearing that sound, because I listened to those records all my life, you know, yeah. and tried to learn all that stuff note for note that I could, and I used to all, everything, you know, the... Those things yeah. and all that, working on all that stuff as a kid and trying to figure all that out, it was just like, wow, it's great stuff, and get to see him, and man, wouldn't it be nice to be able to even just jam with those guys once? Because I know some of those things, you know, and it never thought it would yeah. ever, ever happen. So you saw Merle a couple of times. Yeah. You know, as a kid. And in with, Canada. With Roy still playing. Yeah, and Eldon Shamblin yeah. and Tiny Moore and all that. It was Ooh. like, oh, my God. Because yeah. that was the, the Bob Wills, tribute right. to Bob Wills was, was my uh, yeah. my teething of uh, Western Swing yeah. stuff, you know. I was like, oh, yeah. they played with Bob Wills. So I went down to our Woolworths, and uh, there was a record, Bob Wills. Oh, there's one. Yeah. And I bought one, and it was like, it's kind of corny. You can't hear the bass or drums, but, man, the picking's great on it. So wow. I'd sit, and I'd try and learn that, you know, um, that, that roly yeah, poly stuff. Poly. Those kind of things, and, and the, so the hook went in for that. Yeah. So I've been a gomer for that stuff since I was a kid, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so... When when you saw Roy, was he still playing a telly and using a? a no, nah, he was playing a Les Paul by then. He had okay. a, had a Sunburst uh, Deluxe Les Paul with the mini yes. humbuckers. Yeah, but it was still Roy, so it didn't matter yeah. to me. It was like it didn't yeah. sound the same that telly snappy barky thing. Right. But his playing was still so Roy and Django-y that it was like wow, it's, oh. he shouldn't be allowed to play country, but he's getting away with it. Yeah. you know, kind of guy. So to see that was just great. And then later on, he played a PV, and it was like, yeah. tone. And then I thought, well, he's getting old. Let him go, you know, yeah. that way. Yeah. Because I was such a, by then, I was such a Telecaster twin JBL homo kind of guy. Yeah. That nothing sounded that good to me. And it was like, he should be doing that too. What's wrong with him? Yeah. You know? He's the guy that. He's the guy that started. Why yeah. would you change horses midstream? <laughs> You're not done yet. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's and and kind of going down the the Roy Nichols you know rabbit trail, uh, you know there's this uh, oh Capital put out this uh, like country music fandango I can't remember what it's called but he plays a tune called Silver Bells on it that's just great it's this live it's this live record with Buck and you know Ollie and and Roy's part of the the staff you know band that that's playing and, that was a cousin yeah. Herb Henson yes live that's what it is yes uh, I have, album I have that, that came yeah. out and Herb died just after that but yeah, uh, yeah he played Silver Bells on that yeah. and it's just unbelievable and, and his playing you know before Merle you know was oh, so interesting yeah and, with Rose know, Maddox was exactly great, you know yeah. and you know you kind of come up through that and then and then you get how. You know his playing changed because of you know the work that Phil Baugh and and and, and, and Burton. Jake Burton oh, were doing yeah, and all totally. this, and that Merle Haggard guitar yeah so instead of me yammering on you know like the Merle Haggard guitar style that we think of like the you know it seems like it's a mix of all these guys together I mean what, what oh kind yeah of there's it? another guy nobody talks about is Al Bruno yeah uh, it's amazing that he played on the, the live, or not the live, he played on one of the instrumental albums. You can hear him playing Gut String, and he played on the Hag, the White Hag album. He played on several albums. And uh, amazing guitar player. Phil Ball played on a bunch of stuff. You know, of course, Roy and uh, and James Burton. So those, like those four guys, I think, all of them contributed crazy to that sound. Yeah. You know, and... You can't just say, oh, it was all Roy Nichols or it was all James Burton. He played the lead on the first two albums, you know, and then Roy took over from there. But to me, after that, I, you know, no offense, I love James Burton thing, but I like Roy Nichols thing better because it's thicker and greasier. And right. he would sneak in some little jazzier things that nobody else, country guys, would think of, and it somehow worked. So yeah. that's what sold me on, on his deal more so. But I think as time went on, he took a bunch of those Phil Ball and, and uh, James Burton things and then added his own spin to that, which was a jazzier, swingier kind of stuff. Yeah. And but mixed the two together, and that's kind of as time went on, it became more and more Roy's thing. But I think earlier on, it might have been a mix of all those guys and him here and them, and them here and him, and all that, and the recording together that it just like friends stuff rubs off. Yeah, you know. So yeah, yeah it's it's kind of like listening to the the studio version of Working Man Blues with James and then you hear the live version with Roy and the tone is so much bigger and it's it's yeah, got it's a, his it's got sound a, yeah. and it's well, like it or not it's a yeah. different different sound yeah. there's a probably half 50% guys that go oh James Burton tone yeah. 50% Roy Nichols tone yeah. doesn't matter yeah. they're both awesome and they're great yeah what what can you know again cuz I'm sure you've gone down the Roy Nichols you know you know rabbit hole what so you know what, how did he get his sound? I mean, well, I wasn't there at yeah. the end of the bed watching him do it, but yeah. you know, <laughs> from what I can gather and from worming information out of Norm, the steel player, and Biff, right. the drummer, and, and Bonnie, and then Merle, and everybody, I wore those guys out. I gurmed them to death yeah. while I was on the gig trying to find out all the dirt I could on everything and everybody and Roy's tone and all that stuff. And uh, I got probably the most out of Norm because he sat beside him and right. they were buddies and 
roommates and blah, blah. So, yeah, he said, you know, twin JBLs, uh, lots of volume. <laughs> 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 and old tellies. He always had yeah. early, like, 52, 3, 4, 5 tellies. Yeah. And uh, then he got some 60s ones where he even put black guards on them. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of thing. And uh, he had an early 52 that he'd put a white guard on and then put a Charlie Christian in. And another one had a P90 in it. Yeah. But the bridge pickup was still an old 50s pickup with, you know, most of their stuff was probably the Silverface era. Yeah. And uh, a bunch of the recording in that was the drip edge amps yeah. on a lot of that stuff. And then they went to music bands, which had eminent speakers, which you think compared to JBLs shouldn't sound good, but they made them work. They sounded great through them. Tiny yeah. Moore sounded good through his sort of gimbal back then, you know? Yeah. So, uh, but to me, the sound that I, I think of is a, you know, 67 or 68 drip edge twin, a real one, not a reissue, yeah. with D120s and an early 50s telly on the bridge pickup yeah. or an Esquire, you know. Did he, did he roll the tone control down, you think? I don't think he did, but I do think, and I have heard, that he dimed his amps <laughs> like full blast yeah. and turned way down. Okay. And that gives, of course, when you... You know, when you're up full, then you turn down, turn down a little bit. Darker. Yeah. So by him turning down to there, a lot yeah. darker sounding. Yeah. So I think maybe with that, I'd heard that. I hadn't seen that, or I can't say that that was the truth. But I've read that, heard that, and talked to different guys that say they saw that, and yeah. and that's what they thought that he did was he crank the amp and bring the guitar down and play if he needed a bit more. And if the band's real loud, he got he added the power there to do it with, you know. Right. Okay. So now that we've gone down the Roy the, the Roy Rat <laughs> Rabbit Trail, now so so you get you get called so. And also, just to preface this, you know, uh, Merle had had, after Roy, had had Clint Strong and yeah. Joe Manuel, who are great players, Amazing. But, but they didn't really play in the vein of Roy. And so when you kind of got on the gig, were, were a lot of the arrangements different and such? Were, were you kind of trying to m move things back to kind of the way that, you know, Roy played on the gig or trying well, to honor just, that? To me, it was like uh, respecting your dad kind yeah. of thing. I mean, I got the job with this guy, Merle Haggard, you know, yeah. so to me, it was like, that's a certain sound, and I respect those other guys and their playing and everything. Yeah. Holy shit, players, all of them. But all the songs that he's playing for his audiences are the old ones, so I should maybe at the least tip my hat yeah. to the original stuff which I knew lots of and a, a bunch of those bits and solos and fills and things like that. So I, whenever it would, he would do an original older tune, I would totally rip the solo. And of course he would giggle like crazy. He'd love it, you know? So, I mean, he even said, and I think in a guitar player magazine or at some point about a year after I was in the band, he said that he thought that I was the closest thing he'd ever heard to Roy in an article. So. I paid him until he died. <laughs> but uh, so it was like, I guess I, I, that paid off in that way. Yeah. And 
to back up when I got the gig, I was living here in town and he, and he calls me on the phone. Merle did himself. Yeah. But his band had been coming. I was playing at Skull's uh, Rainbow Room in Turner's Alley. Yeah. Doing a trio six nights a week. We did like a quarter to 10 till uh, 2.45, six nights a week. Merle would come to town. They'd do Nashville Now and these different shows and stuff. And, of course, all of those shows, they'd tape at 5 o'clock or 5.30. So they'd be done by 8.30 or 9. So the band would scatter and hit town before they left the next morning. And a bunch of them would always come to the alley and hang out. Clint would come down a lot and uh, a bunch of band guys and, and jam. And we'd play stuff all night long, you know, doing old country tunes and Merle tunes and swing stuff because of Clint loved swing stuff. So yeah. we did lots more swing when he'd show up. And uh, so anyway, knowing some of those guys through that, I guess Merle had asked them and Joe said, who do you guys think? Uh, we should get because Joe was leaving at that time to go with Leanne Womack mm-hmm. and he got really good job was a band leader slot so he got extra loot I guess for that and yeah. whatever so uh, the uh, five out of eight of them said my name Yeah. so I spent the next couple of years getting even with those other three <laughs> but uh, so anyway he calls me up on the phone and uh, I said hello and he says uh, this red Volkart and I said yeah he said, this is Merle Haggard. And I, it sounded like him, but I was like, I said, Murph, you fucker. Can I say that on here? You just did. Okay. <laughs> My buddy Jim Murphy's a yes, steel guitar steel player. player. Yes. You know? yeah. He's a, was a oh, fantastic everything, but he was a shit stern, <laughs> sneaky, funny, kind of mean a little bit kind of guy. And it was like something he would do. Yeah. And then... <laughs> <laughs> so I said, Murph, you fucker. And he goes, no, no, no. My name's Merle Haggard. I'm a singer. <laughs> Murph wouldn't do that. Maybe it is him. I said, okay. Like, I still kind of didn't buy it. Yeah. He said, I got your number from Joe Manuel and, and uh, Norm Hamlet. And I was like, well, got scared, scared them. I said, okay. He said, well, I'm looking for guitar players. Wondering if you'd be interested in the job. And I waited for about a 30th of a second. I said, sure. And uh, he says, well, great. He said, when can you start? I said, well, what do you got going? He said, well, we got a tour coming up here in a couple of weeks. Can you start on that? I said, hell yeah, I'll do it. I was playing downtown. I could sub out all my jobs. Yeah. And Don said, hell yeah, go ahead and do it. You know, so I, Johnny Highland filled in for me because the turf had blown down at that point. He was out of a job. Right. So he started filling in for me. After a while, I had the Merle gig. So I just said to Don, why don't you just keep Johnny and I'll be his sub when I'm home? Yeah. Okay. So that was fine. And he kept Johnny and that's where Johnny got his deal going. So, uh, he says, yeah, okay, well, we'll start in a couple of weeks. I said, well, let me ask you this. Could you send me maybe some tapes or CDs of your guys' stuff? Because, I, I mean, I know a bunch of your old things, and I know how you guys, when you play live from YouTube, that uh, your arrangements are different than the originals. You stretch them out, you shorten some up, and little horn things are different with the sax and the steel and the guitar. If I could have a couple of tapes or CDs, I could work on that stuff in the next two weeks and have it down to, to be ready to play. And he says, ah, just, just come and play with us. 
I said, you're on, okay, my kind of guy. Yeah. So that was it. That was the deal. So I got the gig, and then, of course, about, uh, I guess about three weeks later, Norm Hamlet is the band leader. I said, Norm, I said, what's, so what's the deal on this gig? He said, you know, I said, uh, do I have the gig, or what's, am I going home? He said, long as you make them laugh, you got the gig. <laughs> so it was like, oh, okay. So we'd be playing and I'd play a solo and he'd do, you know, every fool is a rainbow and I'd start my solo. Of course, he'd be laughing his ass off at that. So I thought, ah, he likes the Roy Nickel kind of solos. So yeah. that kind of made the tip of the hat thing mean more. Exactly. Because he was digging that, you know, and... Because uh, I was his friend. Right. They were, yeah. yeah, best buddies forever. So, you know, he was missing them, I'm sure, and all of that. So if I could give him a little bit of that, that's a good thing, you know. Yeah. So it was all good and, and everything. And so, you know, being like a new kid in the in the group... For a while, it was like, go again, go again, go again. And I thought, man, the band's going to hate my ass because I'm getting all these repeat solos. Yeah. And, of course, thinking back to my Don Kelly lessons, I'm thinking, okay, he's saying go again. I need to play something a little feistier than the stock stock thing. So, you know, depending on the tune or whatever, I would put something in that was a little beefier or a little weirder or a little extra. Mm -hmm. So, and then, it, oh, go again. I was like, man, you're pushing it here. I'm thinking, I don't want to get too weird and scare them off and have them run me off because I'm not sticking to the program. Yeah. But shit, he loved because he's such a guitar nut himself. It couldn't be weird enough for him. He just laughed and loved it. So it was so cool, and so th through that, we became really good friends, and the bus would break down. It'd be me and him and go for a walk, and we'd talk about guitars and pickups. He was all about sound. That guy could hear a gnat fart, I swear. He was like unbelievable ears. Uh, when the Merle Haggard model telly came out, uh, he couldn't, he was in California, and it was during the summer NAM, and Fender wanted to give him the guitar, but he wasn't here. So I went and picked it up for him. So he already had number one and I think number two of those guitars. So I picked up number five from him here for him here. So we get back on the road. I bring it with me with my old one. And uh, I say, here's that guitar from the NAM thing that Fender presented to you. And I accepted it. He said, you like that thing? I said, oh, it's real light. Just try it. See if you like it. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, I'll take it. It's yours. What? So I had number five guitar. Wow. So I play it for a while. And of course, I can't leave nothing alone. I put an old set of 70s single coil Bardens in the thing between tours. We go out first night, first solo, playing some solo, not even thinking about it. And uh, he comes home and he goes, what'd you do with that guitar? I said, what do you mean? He said, sounds way different. I said, worse? He goes, no. Like that. I was like, I changed the pickups in it. Kind of like, I thought he's going to yell at me for jacking with a, with a gift. Yeah. And he's like, man, that sounds good. What are those? I want some of those. Joe wouldn't make them anymore because he'd yeah. make this double blade ones. You know? Right. And these were the old single ones from the 70s. So I 
tried to get a hold of Joe, and he's like, no, I don't make those anymore. I, they're inferior. My new ones are better, and this and that, blah, blah, blah. You know, 0.9-10 Mach 4, the frequency response, and okay. But I still like the old ones. Could you make some? I guarantee you I could sell about 10 sets. No, I'm not going to do that. They're inferior. Yeah. Okay. So I went to another guy, Jake Jones Pickups up in uh, Connecticut, I think, something like that up there. I think he's kind of out of business now. But he copied them exact, sounded great. So I put a set in Merle's, and they were there, and they're still in it. Yeah. So he just flipped it. But he's, like, really about sound and you know, and uh, like when I got the gig, he said, you got to have two amps. I was like, well, why? I only need one. Yeah. You know, and he said, no, I want everybody to have two amps. You only mic one. And, uh, but I want a big sound on stage. Like, okay, boss. You know, so two amps from then on and yeah. it was awesome. <laughs> How good can it get, you know? Who, tell, who tells you to play through two amps? When, uh, I, I saw you play in probably around 2000 uh, in Corpus Christi, Texas, uh, and uh, and you were playing the signature model with the with the single blade pickups, and you had two dual professional, you know, with, custom shop amps with JBLs with in them. E120s in them. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. Well, we had road crews, so I didn't have to carry them. Right, because those things were. Oh, over they were there. weighed as much as a TV. Yeah. 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 Whew. That's so neat to hear that, you know, that Merle was that into the guitar and he was hearing all these things and that he would laugh when you, you know, kind of made these nods to, to Roy and kind of the past. What were some other things you learned from, from Merle, like in the studio or on stage or? Uh, just how he ran a band. I mean, he, I think he was a, obviously Merle Haggard. So to me, he was a genius about a lot of those kind of things with the music end of it, as a writer, as a singer, all that kind of stuff. But as a band leader, same kind of thing, I think, as Don Kelly in some ways, that uh, maybe a bit more subtle, but if we were playing somewhere and they had the bass bins cranked on 11 out front, he would back away, keep backing away from the mic, so they'd have to keep turning his mic up until it would feed back. Mm -hmm. And he just keep backing away and backing away. And then finally, these sound guys are at a loss because it's like there's no voice and he's too far away. Yeah. So back in the monitors, the fullback would come, hey, what's going on up there? I can't get you out front in the mic. And he would say it right in front of the crowd. Turn them bass bins down. I told you to turn them down. It's rumbling up here and it's roaring and I can't sing in tune. Yeah. And the crowd would be like, oh. And of course, the guy's like, oh shit, in his pants, because the whole, you know, however many thousand people are there are turn around and look at the, the mixer board in the middle right. of the room. <laughs> exactly. That guy's going to go, okay. Yeah, I'm going to turn the bass down. So the mix was always great, was always right. And that was his way of doing that. Uh, he would ask them at sound check. Yeah. But of course, half of those guys are drummers or bass players that are out of work. So all they want to hear is the bottom end on those PAs, you know? Yeah. So. They'd crank them up again for the night thing. And that was how he'd fix them. Little things like that. I was like, how cool can you do that? Yeah. In front of a bunch of people, that's the last time that guy will do that to Merle Haggard. Yeah. You know, just those kind of things. And then in the studio, he was real slick the same kind of way as you'd be playing. You never say anything about what to do or what to play unless it was like, kind of out of line or whatever and then he might say nah maybe something a little bit simpler you know 
And then he'd, he'd look at somebody else and say to them, like somebody knew longer, like not me, he would look at Norm and say something like, you know, maybe a little closer to the melody. <laughs> it's like, pow, in the face, you know. Doesn't get any more blunt than that. So, but it was so cool the way that he did it. Yeah. It wasn't embarrassing, yeah. and it wasn't singling you out. And Hey, stop. Yeah. Somebody needs a lesson here. It was none of that. Yeah. Really cool stuff. And, and he would ask, you know, he'd say, oh, what do you guys think? You know, uh, is that tempo right or is it a bit slow? He'd always ask other uh, guys' opinions and stuff, and... You know, most, of course, most of the guys would be, ah, oh, it's fine by me, because he's the one that has to be comfortable singing it, mostly. Yeah. So nobody's going to balk at the tempo. Oh, I want it faster so I can play a faster solo. Probably not going to yeah. happen, you know. So he would always ask opinions and, and uh, take input from guys. But, of course, you know, obviously, he'd have the final say in whether something went on or, or not that stuck to the tape. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. So for me, it was a fantastic uh, learning experience to be in his studio using his old Martins, those, you know, those triple uh, O 45s that had Merle Haggard in the neck. Oh, my God. Play those things to make records with. It's like, wow. You know, yeah. oh, shit, my dad could see that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, it was just so cool. But those guitars sounded great, obviously, magic-sounding things from the other records. I wasn't probably doing it any justice, but I was sure trying, you know. And yeah. uh, so I got to do that and, you know, figure out, you know, and I'd learned a bunch of the rhythm things from doing demos and stuff here for quite a while and watching rhythm players and see how they did stuff. And, you know, if one guy did everything, I'd see a one time he would, you know, paintbrush and doing his... Uh, and the other guy. So, and learn how to do that. And, and uh, so when I got, you know, with him, I had already learned some of those kind of things. And then listening more intently to the rhythm tracks of the old stuff, I would hear what Glenn Campbell did and, and uh, Bobby Wayne, those other rhythm guys in the band on the records. And I would say, ah, okay, ah, ah, some of those little things they would do. I would try and sneak some of that and incorporate some of that into the newer things that we were doing. More out of tipping the hat and, and giving it that flavor that those guys made that stuff so great with, yeah. you know. So it was a wonderful learning experience, and and he was always praising guys, and and uh, never mean, in, you know, like wasn't a prick producer, or none of that kind of stuff at all. Just totally I, nothing but good to say, you know. Wow, so, awesome gig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm assuming you, you probably ran into James Burton or Reggie Young or some of the other, you know, some oh, of the sure. guitar players that, that that played on there, and yeah. Uh, and did they come out to shows or anything like that? And you had to play. Oh in yeah, front of James them? came out a bunch of times. Yeah, it was yeah. awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Reggie came out one time. Yeah, it was fantastic. You know, it was just just to meet those guys. I probably broke their hand just going, "Oh, that's Reggie." You know, <laughs> "Oh, James Burton." Yeah, it's just being a guitar gomer, I can't help it. You know, yeah. it's like all of us. We're all nerds about guitars, and that's why we're here. Yeah, you know. So in. Uh, in 2000, on April Fool's Day, you moved to Austin. Yeah. So, you know, what, what caused you to move to Austin? 
from from Nashville. I'd say Nashville caused me the nerve to Austin because yeah, <laughs> uh, just the downtown scene had changed so much, and the playing thing, and the music, and uh, just the kind of music that was on the radio, all of that. And I thought, well, when Merle hangs it up, I'll still be here, and I kind of don't want to be now anymore. Yeah, because of all of that, and uh, you know, all the records had distorted guitars, and none of that kind of what I like kind of playing on it. So I thought I'm not going to have a snowball's chance in hell of getting in on any of that because it's a young rock guys thing. And I don't even think like that or want to or any of that. So I might as well move while I still have a good job. I'm making money and go to somewhere that, you know, I might like better. And I'd been in Austin a lot and, and, Recorded there with Dale Watson, some different people, and Sleep of the Wheel and things like that. And so I thought, well, if and when the Merle thing folds up for me, whether he fires me or he retires or whatever, if I can move now, then when that happens, I'll already be there. And if I didn't have that job, I couldn't afford to leave town playing on Broadway. Yeah couldn't go do anything or afford it, you know? So I moved while I still had that job. So while I moved there, then I could still fly out and do the gigs the same old way or the bus coming through and all of that. And I thought, well, I want to go to Texas because that's a lot of Western swing and old traditional country still there. And I thought, well, when real country music takes its last dying breath, it'll probably be in Texas. So I'd like to be there, not for that, but until then, yeah. I think it stands a better chance where here it's already died as far as the old stuff that I like, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, so that's why I moved there. Yeah. And it's no hard offense, to find. But yeah. That's progress, and I'm getting old, and that's what it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No biggie, you know. Yeah. Then you ended up uh, kind of getting pulled back into some things because of Brad Paisley. So Brad Paisley, and that's that's where that's where we met. Right. So, uh I think he he had seen you play a number of times, and then uh, I think I guess I guess I met you when uh, you played at, at Brad's wedding reception. Right. Yeah. He used so, to come into Roberts. Yeah. When he was doing his radio tours, I guess before he kind of got going big, you know. Yeah. But he used to come into Roberts and he sit there quiet as a mouse and just sit and stare. And he walked by on the way out the door and look at the pedal board picture with the camera, you know, <laughs> with the phone and yeah. And he'd oh, what's that pedaler? What's that do? You know, kind of guitars yeah. nerd. Yeah. So uh, then after I'd moved to Austin. He come through town a few times on some radio things where he'd be doing acoustic, just uh, pushing new stuff, and uh, he'd come with his a couple times with his band, and they'd come to one of the clubs I was playing at if they had a show that ended early or whatever, and then I'd be playing late, of course, and they'd come by and hang out, and yeah. and, was, and we got talking, and of course we hit it off right away, uh, pickups, guitars, nerd stuff, you know, yeah. so. Uh, 68 Paisley, and that guitar came from San Antonio. A steel player owned it, a guitar yeah. player, steel player, and uh, all of that stuff. So we just guitar magnet for each other. So we were best friends right away. Yeah. And then uh, he'd come to town, and then, of course, his at that time girlfriend yeah. would be filming something in Austin, and he'd call and say, hey, uh, where are you playing Tuesday night? And I'd say, I'm, Tuesday I'm down at Ego's. We start at 10 o'clock. Uh, do you have extra guitar and amp? Yeah. 
Why, you coming to town? Yeah, but I'm, my wife's filming, so I'm bumming off of her. I'm right, getting right off of her, so I can't yeah. bring anything with me. Yeah. So I'm just showing up and hanging out. Oh, yeah, come on. So he'd come and show up, and I'd bring an extra amp and a guitar, Telecaster, and he'd come sit in all night with our band and, you know, just that kind of stuff and had fun. And so yeah. then when he got married, he says, hey, you want to play my wedding? Yeah. Of course. Why yeah. not? Yeah. Yeah, we'll jam some more. Yeah. And <laughs> you played on, you know, Spaghetti Western Swing, which was Grammy nominated. Yeah, nominated, yeah, yeah. But then, you know, then he had you play on Cluster Pluck. Yeah. And I thought that was that was a really neat thing that he did where he was able to kind of honor his heroes. Right. And and, yeah. you, and you were, you know, right there with James Burton and Albert Lee and John Jorgensen and Brent Mason and Vince Yeah, Gale all the best guys. Warner. I don't know why he put yeah. me in there. <laughs> well, you, you deserve to be there. Eat a little yeah. salt, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that was, uh, and that did win, win a Grammy. Yeah, it did win one. Yeah. Well, yeah. many guys on it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was my first Granny Award. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And he mentioned my name in his book. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. Not so too I quit shabby. playing now. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're done now. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you've, uh, you've continued to play in Austin, and you, you play, I mean, you know, at, at least, you know, almost every day, you know, at least five times a week. Now I probably, probably play, the last five or six years, I've kind of cut back, and I'm, I'm playing three or four nights a week. But, yeah. but for... 15 years at least, or 16, I, I played seven nights a week all the time. I would do afternoon gigs, doubles on Saturdays and Sundays, because I just have been that kind of guy. I did that here. I yeah. played three times a day here, playing clubs before I had my Merle gig, because there's their only way of making money, you know, and play on little sessions and demo things that, I mean, I played for as little as $5 a song. You know, blue and demo stuff here. I know probably the union. They hate to hear that, but yeah, it is what it is. It's what it was back then. It was, you know, we play on that that kind of a thing. But if we did twenty songs in a full ten hour day, adds up. You know, yeah. So uh, yeah, I've just been a workhorse kind of guy, and I love playing. And if I could play in five bands a day, I'd do it. I've done that my whole life, and. That's what I wanted to do and always loved to do, and I've been lucky enough to be able to do that. Yeah. You know, to some guys, that's like, that's oh, way too much work and too many hours and not enough money. You know, it's like, well, it's not about money. It's about learning to be a good player and learning from you and learning from that guy. And, oh, there's a new different steel player tonight. Oh, great. I'm going to learn something. Yeah. yeah. I've been that kind of guy my whole life. So it's always been really fun to meet new players and, you know, you run into some guys that are not good people or whatever and, ah, you learn to deal with that. You just, yeah. well, it's right that night off, you know, that's okay. No, It'll be better tomorrow. Yeah. You know? That Austin, of course, is known for, you know, to, you know, besides Nashville is a, another guitar town. Totally. Yeah. So who, who are some of your favorite guys that you've gotten to play with in Austin? Lots of them, you know, just uh, I've been playing at the Continental Club for 19 years with my own band on Saturday afternoons doing my own thing, which is, you know, old country music, but lots yeah. of guitar geek instrumental stuff to of my own. And uh, then I play Sunday nights the same 19 years with a band called Hay Bale. And it's kind of a traditional old school country band. And yeah. uh, we got Earl Ball 
Johnny Cash's old piano player for 25 years. And Kevin Smith is uh, Willie Nelson's bass player now, but he was in a band called High Noon for a long time, Rockabilly Upright player, yeah. real good player, Tom Lewis the drummer. And we have Dallas Wayne is our lead singer for the last six years, and he's like a big uh, chief on the XM radio yeah. country channels, Willie's Roadhouse and uh, Outlaw Country. So he's one of our singers, and myself and Dallas and Earl do all the singing in that band. So... That band been both those bands been there that long. Somebody comes through eventually, right. <laughs> hanging out and gets up and plays. And, right. I mean, we had everybody. Chrissy Hines got up and jammed with us, and you know <laughs> James Burton, uh, Billy Gibbons, uh, Harry Dean Stanton sang with us. Uh, it's been awesome. Brad Kimmon played. Eric Johnson. He's played with me lots. I played with him. Uh, it's been awesome that way, and there's so, yeah. so many great players there. Jimmy Vaughn, you know, and Eric, and uh, Rick McRae, who plays with George Straits, amazing yeah. guitar player. And just there's a piles of guys there maybe that you hadn't heard of. You probably would have, but yeah. a lot of folks hadn't heard of that are just great players, the same as there are here that uh, you don't see. They're not on record on the back of a CD jacket, so a lot of folks wouldn't know who they are, you know. But, yeah, there's a lot of good playing there. Yeah. Put out a number of great, you know, solo records through the years. You know, Telewacker and No Stranger to a Telly and and uh, Redhead and a couple other, you know, records that I'm assuming those are all available on your website that people yeah. can people can check out. Those are, you know, great playing and singing on them. You've also have a True Fire, uh, you know, lesson that came yeah. out, you know, recently that people can. Uh, I have get one online. that came out and a new one, a uh, second one that's coming out here, and okay. uh, I want to say it comes out in December. Wow. So, and yeah, and it's a play along with me kind of a thing, you know, yeah. I'm playing a rhythm and bass and on this tr track and I was with the drummer and uh, I play some stuff and show how to do it. And then there's a little, you can cut me out and play along with the track or split it up and split the solos and all of that on this True Fire thing, which is an excellent uh, wow. guitar nerd program they got a pile of guys on there so if you sign up you have access to literally over a hundred different players you know and pick a name tommy emmanuel's on there even you know yeah Ooh. yeah <laughs> talk about practice <laughs> we all need it now easier yeah all right so let, let's talk gear of course you're known as a telly guy so tell us about this the uh, the guitar that you have with us today this guitar is one of my travel guitars. I kind of don't like taking out my really old yeah. tellies and stuff anymore. Uh, this one is made by a, in California by a fellow named Doc Fisher. And it's I think it's even Doc Fisher Guitars or Fisher Guitars. Okay. And the flame in the neck is crazy. It's fantastic. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's a, uh, I think it's a one-piece ash body. Pretty lightweight, and uh, it's got a Glendale bridge, Glendale knobs. Um, and it's a real heavy knurling, which I like. They stick yeah. when you're sweating. They dig in real good so you don't yeah. miss it. Uh, the pickups in this guitar are made by a fellow named Owen Duffy, and okay. he has ocduffpickups.com, yes. I think it is. And he makes fantastic stuff. This neck pickup has a nickel silver alloy cover okay. instead of a brass one that's uh, chrome plated. 
Mm-hmm. So it's a different, janglier, more. Yeah. A little more clarity to it. Yeah. So I love his pickups, and the, the bridge saddles are kind of goofy. They're uh, Kohler saddles. They're made in Las Vegas, and I don't know if he's going anymore or not. And these are copper he was making copper, aluminum, uh, steel, and brass. And the edges of the saddles touch. So they're actually a little bit wider than everything else that's made out there, which means your strings don't ride over top of the uh, set screws, Yeah, which we run into a lot on some guitars. And uh, so OCDF pickups, Kohler saddles, Glendale knobs, Maple, ash, about it. It's yeah. a good hammer. Yeah, fantastic guitar. And I've got several guitars, and I'm I've always been a nerd for changing parts and pickups. And I got a one of my first guitars is a '58 Esquire, and I cut a big old hole in it with a hammer and a screwdriver, and put a Charlie Christian lap steel pickup in it when I was a kid, and yeah. figured I want to sound like a Gibson guy that I could get that sound and mix the two and be a not have to buy a Les Paul or because I couldn't afford it, but get a Les Paul sound and a Telecaster sound. So that was I did that when I was fourteen. So yeah. A long time ago. That, you know, so I've been a, a nerd guy for parts and, and uh playing with guitars and building building them from scratch. I made some horrible ones. I made some pretty good ones and uh bought all kinds of parts, been in the vintage thing forever and I just eat up with it. I'm sick. So, as someone who's owned a ton of vintage tellies and who's owned and you know, owned Black Guards, owned you know all all the different eras of Telecasters, and you've built a bunch of them, what are some what are things that you look for in a guitar? Like when you're like if you're going to build one or you're going to buy one, what are some key things that you've learned from years and years of of playing tellies? Well, every everybody's different, you know as far as what things that they like, uh, you know, fat girls and skinny girls, it kind of comes down to that kind of thing. There's something for everybody that way. So for me, my choice is uh, a big neck with a lightweight body. To me, not everybody else, rings rings better. Uh, Some guys think a heavier weight body has more sustain. Maybe so, but it's not the sound I like or the weight I like. Yeah. So for me, maybe I'm more of a mid-rangey kind of guy. So I like a big neck and a lightweight body. I love these nickel covers because they're more sibilant and more, to me, the neck pickup sounds more like a DeArmond Dynasonic on a 50s Gretsch as opposed to the dark, muddy 50s neck pickup telly sound. Mm -hmm. So in that way. So that, and uh, I am a big fan of brass saddles and always have been. And I've had, back when the six saddles came out, I bought into all of that. And it didn't last very long, and I went all back to the old three saddles. Because to me, I think that two strings on one saddle is a certain kind of sound. Whether it's sympathetic one to the other or not, I don't know. But to me, it is. Where the single saddles, you can intonate better. But the, the guitar is a different sound. 
yeah, there, there seems to be something uh, to the the case of there being you know two strings on one saddle, and the fact that it's getting it's getting more forced vibration or resonance or so. I don't know what it is or the the downward pressure. Something. It's a different sound. It's a different sound. Yeah, yeah. And so if you put one of those six saddle bridges on it, it just it. it it sounds completely different. Yeah, it's a different yeah. like it's not it or bad. not. I mean, it's yeah. some guys love it. I yeah. mean, everybody that buys an American Standard loves them. Yeah, because they have six saddles, they can get perfectly in tune. Yeah, you know, before these compensateds, we we're taking a needle nose pliers and bending the screw until it was compensated, which was fine too. Because once you got it right, you'd never change it. Right, unless you drastically went from. Eights to thirteens, you might have to change it. But yeah. if you went from tens to eleven, you wouldn't have to change the bridge once you had it set. Yeah. So, I'm a big fan of the three saddle bridge. Uh, I like the the I, what they call the modern wiring, where the switch is neck, both, and bridge, and the yeah. tone works on everything, and so does the volume. Yeah. So I'm like that. I I don't care for the old ones that have the mud setting, neck pickup. And bridge because you have to fiddle with it like the old strat and get right. it in the middle yeah to get the middle sound and, you know and so, and and in some uh, cases those pickups are out of phase with each other yeah sometimes yeah. I've, I've run into yeah. you know one or two that when you carefully balanced it it was all yeah. of a sudden you hear doink 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 yeah of the old yeah. ones yeah you got the Steve Cropper sound yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah which is cool you know yeah for that yeah. it's awesome you know yeah so. Uh, you were, you mentioned strings. That made me think. What what uh, what gauge of strings do you use? I'm uh, using uh, Ernie Ball, uh, eleven to fifty. All right. And I used for years and years. I used thirteens back in the jam days at the at the stagecoach, and I ended up switching to elevens because nobody would play my guitar. Yeah. Said, oh, it plays like a dobro, and the strings are too heavy, and the accent's too high. So it's like I don't want to sit in. It's like I'll never get a break. Right. That was my yeah. goal. We need to take a break yeah. on Monday night. So yeah. I, I went down to elevens. I was like, oh, these are still stiff because most guys use nines and maybe tens. You know, some eights. Yeah. So I just couldn't do that because to me the sound is so thin and so flappy. And because I play so hard like a farmer, I just plow. So light strings don't sound as good. Where yeah. if they're heavier, it's more like playing an acoustic guitar. Doing rings better. Right. You know, I don't think the bass strings last as long, fresh string ringy wise, when they're big and fat. I don't know if they fill up with dirt quicker or what, but they don't seem to ring as long as a, a lighter gauge set, you know. But. I'm okay with that. Yeah, you know. So is this a regular gauge that that, or do you buy singles or? or is no, it, no, it's a regular. They make them. They make a, like 11 to 48 is their yeah. common one, and then I think they make a 11 to 52 as well. Okay, and uh, and your pick. I saw that you got one of those blue chip picks on there. I'm one a blue chip, <laughs> blue chip guy, big what? time now. I am hardcore. <laughs> It's just, you know, I'm, I'm a nut about that kind of stuff, and, and uh, yeah. I think picks sound totally different. They do. You know, the, the nylon Jim Dunlops, they, to me, they, they sound dead. You know, the old celluloid from the 60s, if you can find them, uh, they sound really good. 
but you can't find them anywhere and you can't get, they may lie and say they make them here, but they can't make them. You can't buy that material here. You can only get it in Italy. Mm -hmm. So if you can get picks made in Italy, you could get the original stuff. Uh, but they can't have it here because it's too flammable, yeah. like the nitrate pick guards on the old stuff. Same right. reason yeah. they go up, combust, you know. Yeah. So what model pick is that? Yeah, I don't know. This one's got holes in it. Let me get the other one. You said you got that one from Carter Vintage, but you got another one directly from... Yeah, from them, and that's a TAD45. All right. I guess that'll, if somebody wants to uh, check one out, they can... Uh, Look, look yeah. that up, and uh, it's pretty thick. Yeah, and I got the Canadian model. It's got three picks all in one, so you don't have to wear one tip out and throw it away. <laughs> it's, it, being a cheap Canadian, I opted for that. I thought three picks in one—that'll last me forever. <laughs> so I love them. I think they're great. And then Carter's ordered some uh, from them, and they had these holes drilled in them. Yeah, which when you're sweating, man, it's like killer grip. Yeah. So, yeah. Out, and the sound, I just love the sound of them. Yeah. Fantastic. And so you're just using our uh, our Deluxe Reverb today, uh, but you use a, uh, are you using a Grammatico amp now? Yeah, I've been a Grammatico amp guy for probably over 10 years now. Before that, I was a twin reverb with JBL's guy for yeah. a long time. And you went through this PVLTD phase also. Yeah. yeah. Our hay bale band got so loud at one point that the twin was distorting on six. That, that's loud. <laughs> oh, it's like bleeding loud. Yeah. So I thought, man, this is just not fun when it's that dirty to me. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I used to use an LTD when they first come out with the JBL. Mm -hmm. So I went on a mission. I found some of those, and I wound up using it and going, man, it's kind of hard and sterile. But with the JBL, it's a bit sweeter and a bit warmer. Yeah. I'll just try harder. And I wound up getting really used to them. So I used them for probably six, seven years. About three or four of them, as I found them, you know, because they quit making them, the LTD 400. They quit making that, I think, in 78 or 9. And then nothing for a couple of years. And then they came out with the Nashville 400. Yeah. Which had a built-in compressor. <laughs> yes. That's bad. Yeah. And and the mid-range sweep stuff. That's rough. All it can do is get nasalier with that. So those are out for me. But so I wound up with the LTDs and I was happy with those. And then I met this fellow John Grammatico, who'd moved to Austin and was build starting to build amps. And uh run into him at a music store and a young fellow working the store said, oh, you got to meet this guy. He makes great stuff. And he had a 410, 40 watt uh, basement type thing that he called the Kingsville and great sound and amp, really tight bottom end, real clean, but 40 watts. I was like, nah, I'm used to my 200 watt Mississippi Marshall mm -hmm. that I'm using that's loud as a PA and clean as a bell. So I can I can make something like that. And I'm like, nah, I doubt it, you know. No offense, but there ain't a twin on the planet that's as clean as that amp. They sound better, the tone's better, but this thing is so clean and, and kind of sterile, but I'm okay with it now. I'm at that point of I like that sound. I'm used to it. So we tried for probably three years changing everything, and he's just a fanatic about sound. 
uh, that I would spend uh, 10, 12 hours once a week, twice a week during the day, go to his house and I'd sit there with a the guitar. He did all the work. I just was his guinea pig. So I'd play something and he'd say, play something. So I'd play a lick and he'd say, okay. And he'd take this one part and unsolder it, flip it around. How's it sound now? Not as good. Put her back. Do that through everything. Get the direction right. So it sounded just right of all the bits in there. And then he'd go, okay, these are metal film. Let's take these out and let's try polypropylene resistors. Okay, so yeah. we do that. Another couple months would go by, same direction, finding the right ones, because they're not, even though they're marked, they have a plus sign on one end, not always mm -hmm. that they're that, that that's right, you know. So we did that and then go, okay, now uh, I just got these new carbon composite that would to use in old hi-fi stuff. Let's try those. Ooh, fatter, warmer. Okay, let's put those in the preamp section but when you get to the power, we want a harder, cleaner to reproduce that warmer fat sound. So we'll try the metal film here. And all these different, to me, is Greek, you know. Yeah. I'm just sitting there with a guitar going, okay, yeah. But my input is, yeah, it sounds better, or I like it, or I don't, or that kind of. So we went through that for probably three years worth of jacking around starting out with a twin chassis with four 6L6s. We went to the 6CA7s or whatever, EL34s. We went that way, and then we went 212s, uh, 410s, a 15, a 12 and a 10. Tried every combination. We tried all kinds of speakers, you know, all the different Jensen's and Neo's and all that stuff out there. Wound up with the old JBLs. So after about three years of jacking around with all these different speakers and resistors and things like that, I wound up with, to me, the best sounding amp I've ever had in my life. It's just unbelievable. Better and great and really matched. It's only 80 watts, but for some reason, it's as loud as an LTD somehow. I don't know what all he did. Yeah. He's a wizard. And you've, and you've got an old JBL in it. I've got two 12-inch uh, oh, D120s okay. that I had reconed, Austin Speaker Works, reconed them for me and put base paper, which is the thicker, heavier paper, mm -hmm. uh, with the paper surround. Okay. So it's a little bit tighter, definitely, than yeah. the looser you know, D120. So same chrome covers and everything like that. And... Uh, Man, it's just like I say, it's the best amp I've ever had, and it sounds fantastic. And uh, but that said, it weighs about ninety pounds, so I can't be flying it to gigs because that's a two hundred dollar bill one way, yeah, something like that. So he makes several models. He makes this uh, Kingsville the four ten forty water, and everybody's got Jimmy Vaughn probably has ten of them. Yeah, and the Buddy Guy's got one. Steve Miller's got one. Billy Gibbons has got a couple. All the blues guys are just flipping over his 410. And so he started making a 212 that he calls a DFW, Dallas-Fort Worth twin. And it's a 212. And uh, he makes a low power, I think, and a high power. And then he makes a little small single 12 called a LaGrange, mm -hmm. which sounds like. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I had him make me one of those. And... 
bit too dirty for my wanting, so I put a JBL in it, and he's beefing it up, and it's in the middle of getting jacked up a little bit cleaner uh, yeah. for me, and that would be my flying travel amp, a single yeah. 12, and I don't know what the watch is going to be on it yet, but uh, I have faith in him. He does amazing work. Yeah. So that's my main amp, but then on this trip, I brought out, I have a little show bud. Uh, they made, back in the late 60s, they made a single 12 practice amp for some, a bunch of, must have been Ammons and Lloyd Green and all the, all the yeah. Opry guys, single 12 that were like 20 watts. So I found one that was blown up, and I took it to a buddy of mine uh, that's an amazing amp guy too, that's more transistor. So he took this little show bud, and it's a single 12 E120, but he made it 100 watts. Mm -hmm. but he kept the show bud tone stack or the tone guts of it, yeah. beefed up the power, and put in a digital reverb inside of it. Huh. And it is, for a transistor, it's the sweetest little amp. This buddy of mine, Ray Ewell, makes amps uh, in Austin as well. And for a transistor amp, it's like, wow, really good amp. So I, And it's light, so I fly it with me. You know, at least until I get my new little Lagrange done. Yeah. But uh, so that's that's it for amps. Right? I still have some old ones, uh, Black Super and an old Brown Concert and a Tweed Harvard. And they, I don't use them, but I have them. I still have them, and I love them. They're cool, and they're paid for. Yeah. <laughs> so that's all good. That's it for amps, really, you know. Yeah. And then pedal-wise, I know, you know, you're sporting Durham Electronics. I know you use, like, the Mucho Busto, and they make a red verb. And, yeah. And uh, you've used some other stuff. I, usually you have one of those old Boss DM3 analog delays, and you might have some other... That's what I love, because I like the distortion that it gives. Yeah. You know, so I, I'm not much of a pedal guy, and I did, you know, I had a... When I moved to Austin, I think I, I had a Tube Screamer, Actually, I sold it here before I left because the guy said, "Hey, I'll give you two hundred bucks for that green box." Yeah, I said it's yours. <laughs> it's yours. And it was the one, the old one, eight oh eight with a little square button. Yeah. Now they're big money, I guess. But yeah. what, it was like pff, I use it three times a night. Yeah, I'll take two hundred bucks for it. You know. Yeah. You can replace uh, it with something. Totally. Else. So I bought a blues driver and I had that old Red Echo and a Boss compressor when I moved to Austin. Yeah. Then I met Alan Durham. And what sold me on him is that he wasn't a pushy guy. He yeah. came and said, hey, have you ever tried a, a, like a thing called a clean boost? And I said, no. He said, well, that's what you're doing with your compressor. The volume's up and the compression's off. Yeah. And I said, no, I'm used to this. Oh, okay. About a month later, he comes back. He says, you still liking that? Like, yeah, yeah. He said, well, I make one that's kind of like that. I think you might like it. Oh, cool. Yeah. I didn't say any more. Come yeah. back a couple weeks later. As time went on, he wore me down, I guess. Yeah. He says, I, you know, if you want, I'll leave one with you. You can give it a try and see if you like it. Yeah. And I said, sure, I'll try it. Yeah. He said, okay, so you take this one out and put this one in its place. But he said, don't take it out for a week. Yeah. He said, play it for a week and leave it on set it there and see what you think. Because I didn't yeah. know how to set nothing or. Yeah. So he said, here, put it here and this and that. Okay. Played it for a week. He said, and then he said, after that, he said, then hit the switch and shut it off. See what you think. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> it sounded like I got dead flat wounds. Yeah. With a blanket over my amp. It just didn't have any luster to it. Yeah. Without it. It was like, so I put my, I thought, 
he's selling me snake oil. So I put my old boss one back in. Same thing. It was just louder. Yeah. But it still sounded kind of flat and lackluster. And it was a thing he calls the sex drive that yeah. him and Charlie Sexton designed together. And yeah. so that was my first pedal from him. Yeah. Then he left me alone for about a year. <laughs> <laughs> then he says, uh, you like the blues driver pretty well? <laughs> so I mean, he's coming to see so me lots. We're yes. hanging out. And so he know? kept he kept working on you. And then oh, he had yeah. you using the Mucho Busto. Oh, he's and then snake oil yeah. salesman. Yeah. That's, but a great guy. Yeah. Ends up, turns out he's now he's my best friend yeah. 20 years later. Yeah. We're best buddies and just awesome guy and does incredible work. So anyway, I wind up changing out the blues driver for the Mucho Busto. So I had those yeah. for probably... Five years, and then he, you know, he's making other stuff and doing that, and he makes this Neil Young pedal called a Crazy Horse. That's, it sounds like the worst amp you've ever heard in your life yeah. to me, but apparently that's the Neil Young sound. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you need filter caps real bad. So he says, "Hey, you want to try one of these?" So I got it, and I was like, "Oh, that's horrible! Take it away." <laughs> Yeah. I'll never use that, you know. Yeah. So then he makes this thing called a Zia drive. It's like the Mucho Busto without any compression. So it's more Marshall kink, kink kind of sound. Yeah. Great for like rock rhythm, bluesy rhythm, or just a little hair on it without being full-blown Gary Moore distortion kind of thing, you know. Yeah. So I got one of those and the, and the sex drive. uh he ended up making me a red verb, which is a digital reverb, and it has a sex drive clean boost in it uh, with a buffer. So it's all clean and juicy and all that. And I mean, it's still a digital reverb, so you still get that <laughs> at the end if the band's not playing. But yeah. when the band's playing, I think it sounds fat. And for a digital one, it sounds really good and fat. And I'm, so I'm happy with those. And I still have my old red echo that I love. Yeah, and uh, I got so I just got a little pedal board and one of those old uh, Carlo sound uh, anvil briefcases. Yeah, so that's a good, good little road case, you know. It goes where you need to go. Yeah. Well, Red, I really appreciate you coming down. I know you're you're in town to play a show with uh, Robbie Folks and and uh, Linda Gale Lewis. You're yeah. playing at the station in tonight. And uh, thank you for coming down. Thank it you for a, having a me. A real pleasure. pleasure. Oh, thank, thank you, you, Red. My pleasure.